If you have your Bibles or Scripture journal, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to Luke and chapter 11. Luke and chapter 11, as we continue our journey through this gospel that we began last year, begin chapter 11, and we will look at verses 1 through 13, 1 through 13 in our time together this morning. It will also be behind me on the screen in my translation as well for you to follow along there. If you got it, say I got it. All right, let's uh, read this together. Luke and chapter 11, start in verse 1. Holy Spirit says, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, let me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot give up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is a friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead uh, of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit of those who ask him? Amen. It's God's word. May God write his eternal truths in all of our hearts. In December 2015, a new, as you know, right, a new Star Wars film came to theaters. For the first time in 10 years, it was called The Force Awakens. You may or may not remember that before the movie was released, there was a bit of hubbub over an advertisement that was set to play before the movie in England. Does anybody remember that? Anybody remember that? A bit of a hubbub. The advertisement was from the Church of England, and it was a 60-second spot in which various people in various settings read portions of what we call the Lord's Prayer from Matthew 6. Eventually, several theaters pulled the advertisement because of the outcry of the Lord's Prayer's offensiveness. Many who were in favor of the advertisement being played argued that the Lord's Prayer is not offensive. They said millions of people recite the Lord's Prayer every day. And in fact, in the context of England, where this outrage came from, their own parliament recites the prayer before every session. Even Carrie Fisher, who played... Princess Leia, said the ad should have been allowed to play and that it was not offensive at all. Andrew Wilson, uh, the pastor of London's King's Church, wrote about this debate in November 2015 when it happened. This is what he said. Listen to what he said. He said, there's been a kerfuffle, which is a great word, in the UK over this cinema advert in which the Lord's Prayer is prayed by various different people across the nation being banned in cinemas. It was due to go out before the new Star Wars movie, but it's been pulled because it could offend or upset people of others' faiths, or none. 
The response has been fairly predictable, he said. Secularists cheering because they think it is offensive, and Christians lamenting because they don't. Personally, I think the advert is great, and that the brouhaha, another great word, will cause more people to watch it in the end anyway. But as, it, as to whether it is offensive, I have to come in out and say the seculars are right. Lord's Prayer is not mild, inoffensive, vanilla, listless, nominal, wishy-washy, or paper-wary. If you don't worship the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, in fact, it is deeply subversive, upsetting, and offensive. From the first phrase to the last, end quote. Is Wilson right, do you think? Is he right that the Lord's Prayer is actually subversive and even offensive? I think he is. What we call the Lord's Prayer may indeed be something we have all recited many times. How many times have you recited the Lord's Prayer in your life? A lot. Its familiarity, however, makes it no less challenging. And in fact, if read and understood rightly, not only should it push us, it should mold us and reorient us as it guides what we pray for, how we pray, and what we prioritize in prayer and even in life. And we'll see this and more in this text this morning, and to do so, we'll consider five points, okay? Five points, beginning with point number one, which we'll call privilege. Point one, privilege. Scene opens with Jesus praying in a certain place, right? Isn't that what it says? Luke is not overly concerned with telling us the locale of this scene. It doesn't matter. But the scene does connect with what has come before it. Because if being a disciple is characterized by loving God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and your neighbor as yourself, then a lesson on prayer must further tell us how to love God and how to love people, how to be a disciple. Well, Jesus is praying, something that Luke tells us he does very frequently, and the disciples approach him and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Now, I already think we should feel some comfort in this request. Prayer is something that many of us struggle with. Do you think that's fair to say? I can't tell you how many times in my ministry I've had people ask for help on how to pray. Just how to pray. I don't know how to pray. Where do I start? And I think that's because we are rarely taught how to pray. It's, it's like we assume once you become a Christian, you'll just automatically know how to pray, right? It's like reading the Bible. You'll just know how to read and interpret the Bible. Is that the case? We must realize that prayer is too important for us to relegate in the, in the area of assumption. That it will be automatic for people with no teaching on the matter. But we must not assume, since prayer is often left to the realm of the private, that somehow it doesn't matter what we pray or how we do it. Says Tim Keller, prayer is the only entryway into genuine self-knowledge. It is also the main way we experience deep change, the reordering of our loves. Prayer is how God gives us so many of the unimaginable things he has for us. Prayer is simply the key to everything we need to do and be in life. We must learn to pray, he says. We have to. So this scene is comforting because look what the disciples do and remember who they are. The disciples have been handpicked by Jesus, and they have walked with him. They have lived with him. They have done ministry with him and been taught by him. Don't already know how to pray. They, don't, they just don't know. <laughs> Even they need to be taught how to pray. So if you feel like I do sometimes, you struggle in your prayer life, take heart. 
but then make strides to grow in it, like the disciples do here, don't they? So the disciples ask Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. And he does, beginning with what we call the Lord's Prayer, something we also see in Matthew 6. But you notice probably when we read it, it's slightly different, isn't it? Then Matthew 6, because it's a separate episode, right? Jesus, like all good teachers, teach the same things multiple times and in multiple settings. How many, you've heard the same lesson from me many, many times, yes, if you are a frequent attender. That's what we see here and why it's a, different, it's a little different than the Sermon on the Mount. So here Jesus gives us elements that should characterize our prayer in verses 2 through 4. Then a parable about bold prayer in 5 through 8. Then exhortation to pray in 9 through 13. And he begins, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Now, when Jesus says, when you pray, say this, he is not necessarily saying you must pray this exact prayer. This, like the one in Matthew 6, is a model for us. He is saying something like, pray like this, use this as a guide, because it is intended to give shape to our own prayers. In other words, we could ask, what should my prayers include? And Jesus thus gives here themes and emphases on uh, what should, that should give shape to our own prayers. And so we must notice where Jesus starts and where we should start with an address to God as what? Father. Now again, how many times have you said the Lord's Prayer before? So many times that we might mindlessly say our Father and miss the gravity of such an address. There's untold privilege and magnitude in being able to address the holy, transcendent, glorious creator as Father. Consider this. As a title for God, Father is found only 15 times in the entire Old Testament. And of those 15 times, not one of them is in the context of prayer. But then you get to the incarnation of Jesus... And we see the title of Father used of God 65 times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then over 100 in John. Further, there is no evidence that any other ancient rabbi taught their disciples to call God Father. Only Jesus taught his followers to address God in this intimate way. With the advent of Jesus, things have changed, haven't they? Through Jesus, and only through Jesus, can we approach God as Father. This isn't something that everyone can do, you understand. Not everyone can call God Father. Only those who have been adopted by him through identification with Christ can address him this way. See, we've, we've heard it said that all people are children of God. Have you heard that before? But is that actually what Scripture teaches? Of course it's true that as loving creator, God rules over his creation, Right? with fatherly, providential care. And of course, it's true that every person, without exception, is loved by God, made in his image, and worthy of dignity and honor. That's true, yes? But only those who have believed on Jesus and given him their allegiance are adopted as sons and daughters and thus can approach him in this manner. You see the enormity of this? Who in the Old Testament could approach God with the the familial way that Jesus instructs us to hear? You think of the title Father. What is it implying? It implies intimacy, yes, tenderness, but also a recognition of authority. 
there's a sense that God is a caring Father who is a loving Lord and one who rules over us. Tim Keller said, this is one of my favorite of his quotes, he said, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. That's a fitting picture because it both reminds us that we can approach God as a dearly loved child who can take even the most seemingly trivial petitions to him at any time, but he's still the king. He's still a ruler. He's the sovereign God of all things. So not only does he care, get this, not only does he care, but he could do something about it. But for those who don't know Jesus, God is ruler, but he isn't father. You see? Think of the way Jesus phrases this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, our father who is what? In heaven, right? In heaven. Who could stroll into heaven on their own merits and by their own might? Who could do it? Tell me. No one. How can we go up to God as Father if not through the work of the only one who deserves to address him as such? Let's illustrate it like this. Imagine if one day when I was in high school, my mom is making dinner and a stranger is walking down the street in front of our house. He walks in the front door, he walks into the kitchen, he sits down at the table, and he says, what's for dinner? Now, even though my mom is fairly hospitable, this would freak her out. And she would ask, who are you? Why are you here? If you don't leave right now, I'm calling the cops. Which is a reasonable reaction, isn't it? We don't know them. No one invited them. <laughs> they don't belong there. They have no business at all of being there. They are a stranger. But now imagine the picture changed. Imagine if it, it, a stranger was walking down the street in front of the house, but they're walking next to me. We walk into the house together. I tell my mom, Mom, this is my friend. Can he stay for dinner? Her response would be completely different, wouldn't it? She wouldn't freak out. She wouldn't threaten to call the cops. She would say, nice to meet you. Of course, you can stay for dinner. And she would get him a plate and cup and some food, and he would sit at the table like he was her son too. Why the difference? It's because the second time, the stranger came in with her son. The reason we could pray, our father, is because Jesus, the only son of God, has by virtue of his work and our identification with him, escorted us, do you see, into God's presence. But he does more than sit us at the table and treat us as sons and daughters. He adopts us officially into the family with all the privileges and perks of natural children. And so we can approach God as father as Jesus did because of Jesus. Don't you see that just this word father is the most important word in all of prayer? Do you see that? Everything else flows out of the fact that we can approach God as Father. Everything else is put in perspective. When we sit and we dwell on the fact that we who were once far off have been brought so near that we could address God like we belonged in the house all along. Reformer Martin Luther said, Father is indeed a very short word, but it includes everything. Not the lips, but the feelings are speaking here, as though one were to say, even though I am surrounded by anxieties and seem to be deserted and banished from your presence, nevertheless, I am a child of God on account of Christ. I am beloved on account of the beloved. Therefore, he said, the term father, when spoken meaningfully in the heart, is an eloquence that the most eloquent in the world cannot attain. For this is a matter that is expressed not in words, but in sighs. 
which are not articulated in all the words of all the orators, for they are too deep for words. We should then never forget about this privilege that we enjoy because of the love and grace of Christ. We must not stroll up to the presence of God as if we merited such things ourselves. This will give us confidence on how our prayers are received by God. It'll help us to keep perspective in our prayer life, and this leads us to our second point. Let's consider our second point. Point number one was privilege. Point number two is priority. Priority. Notice after the address of God as Father what the first petitions are. For God's name to be hallowed and for his kingdom what? To come. Where Jesus starts is where we should start because Jesus reminds us of what our priority should be in prayer and in life with concern for God's glory and for him to bring his kingdom in its fullness. Hallowed is not a word we typically use, is it? Have you ever, in the history of your life, used that word outside of reciting the Lord's Prayer? So what does it mean? To hallow God's name means that we desire his greatness, his holiness, and glory to be made manifest among his creation. It's a desire that more and more people will come to recognize his holiness and splendor and acknowledge him as king because we both want all things to pursue their created design and because we know if people don't submit to God's rule in this life, then they will do it in the next and it will be too late. But the petition that the kingdom comes is related to hallowing of God's name because it is a desire for God's rule to be manifested in its fullness. See, Well, we know that Jesus' first coming brought the kingdom in part. This petition is asking for the kingdom to come completely, wherein evil is fully eradicated and all all will acknowledge Christ as king and he brings the new heavens and new earth. That's what this is asking for. It's like Maranatha that Paul says in 1 Corinthians. You know that Jesus doesn't start where we typically start in our prayers. He doesn't tell us to start with petitions for things we need, does he? He doesn't start with, give us each day our daily bread. He starts with, may your name be holy and may your kingdom come fully and finally. This doesn't mean bread isn't important. It doesn't mean whatever you have on your heart and mind aren't important. It doesn't mean your petition for relief of whatever is making you anxious at that time is irrelevant or unnecessary to ask about. What it does mean is that whatever we are petitioning God with for ourselves or others is not the most important thing that there is. Or even the most important thing we should be petitioning God for. More important than bread is God's glory. More important than daily sustenance is the kingdom of Christ being manifest among us in its fullness. There is a perspective here that we need that Jesus is trying to give us. See, In our prayers, we may be so in a rush, are you like this? So in a rush to get to our petitions that we simply skip over supplications regarding the kingdom of Christ. Are you like that? Nobody wants to admit it. I do it. (laughs) I'm prone to that. Especially when there's something, yes, I'm particularly anxious or worried about, I get right to it. That thing becomes the most important thing to me. And is thus the thing I get to first when I'm praying. Jesus is showing us that there is indeed time for such petitions, but not first of all. 
First of all is God's name be made great and for his kingdom to come that all things may fulfill their created purpose, which is to glorify and loud their creator. I think of uh, Frodo's companion Samwise in Lord of the Rings. You thought of that too, right? In one particular scene, Sam, Samwise puts the ring on his finger. Now the ring, uh, you understand, was it's incredibly powerful, and so powerful it needed to be destroyed, right? Um, before the Dark Lord got his hands on it. And what the ring does to the wearer is it magnifies their ego, and it changes the person. So, or rather, it brings out the true person. That's what it does. This is how Tolkien describes when, when Samwise put the ring on. He said, all things around him were not dark but vague, while he himself was there in a gray, hazy world, alone like a small, black, solid rock. Tim Keller says of this, suffering can do that too. It can make you and your needs the only solid, real thing, and all other concerns vague, hazy, and unimportant. This self-absorption can make you unable to give, receive, or feel love. There's a numbness, a fixation on what is happening to you. You may be unable to get out of yourself and think of, serve, or love others, or even feel loved by others. Do you see, when, when we particularly are struggling, or we're particularly concerned with things that make us nervous, or anxious, or afraid, those things become the only real and solid thing to us. But Jesus comes in at this point and says, if you know God is Father, you know you have a ruler of all things as your champion. He cares about your petition, but you will be able to put those worries in their rightful place when you begin with God's fame and kingdom. Says Dale Ralph Davis, we need to hear that God's preeminence must be, well, preeminent in our prayer. God's interests come first. This is the antidote that our self-absorption needs. You see, we start with our personal concerns. Those become the most solid and real thing to us, as, as Dr. Keller said. And this inevitably leads to how we live. But when you begin with God as Father, and then petitions for kingdom things, then we'll put everything else that comes after in perspective, and it'll set the tone for your prayer because your prayers will be shaped more than by worship and awe. Once we reflect on who God is, we could better approach him. Don't you see? You see that once we grasp that God is Father, who both loves and rules all things, and that all of history is centered on his Christ, and all of history is bending forward towards his glory, all of my concerns and stress and anxieties and worries are put in their proper place. If I start, as I said, as I am prone to start, with prayers of list of needs and wants rather than adoration of God as Father and a desire for His glory to be made fully manifest, what you'll get, what I get when you're done praying is the same anxiety and burden you started with. Isn't that true? But if you begin with adoration and dwelling on the goodness of the Father and the times you remember that He's been faithful in your life, you'll find that those burdens of your needs... Once you get to them, will be less burdensome. Why? Because you remember who it is you're petitioning. Not some remote and distant monarch, but a loving father king. And you remember that things that seem big to you now are not so big in light of eternity. Especially when you know that your eternity will be spent with the father and the son 
and the Holy Spirit in a place with no anxieties and no pain and no worry and no fear. Well, after you do this, says Jesus, you move to point number three, provision. Once you get your priorities right, consider the kingdom of God's glory, you can move to provision. Here we see three requests. You see them in verses three and four. Give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, and lead us not into temptation. The stress here, you see, the common thread in all of these is recognition of dependence on God. You see that? In all three of these petitions, it is an acknowledgement that he is provider, that he is the one whom we need to receive forgiveness from, and that he could be our strength to not fall into sin or apostasy. The first request for provision is for the basic needs of life, daily bread. This recognizes that God is the ultimate provider, that whatever we have, we have because of the graciousness of God. Do you believe that? See, now I know in our society, we champion people who are self-made. And we look down on those we feel don't pull their societal weight. But the fact of the matter is, no one's truly self-made. Do you know that? No one's truly self-made. You don't want to say it, right? Uh, because you're all capitalists, right? We may indeed work hard, okay, for what we have. But every day that you woke up to go to work, it's because God decided to allow you to wake up to go to work. Don't you see? That we have lung capacity to breathe while at work is <laughs> because a gracious God put air in our lungs. That we had strength to labor is because God gave it to us. That we had the mental capacity to learn and think is because God gave it to us. We go on and on and on. But you get the point, don't you? Or do you want me to keep going? Say, so even we, if we take great pride, you say, Vaughn, I've worked for everything I had. I'm sure you did. At the end of the day, and at the beginning for that matter, God is the one who provides. And all that we have can be taken away in short order. Isn't that true? Which is why we pray every day, Father, give us the basics. <laughs> That's what this is asking for. This isn't a petition for luxuries, you understand. This is a petition for the essentials of life. We aren't to pray, Father, give us each day our daily bread, and a new speedboat wouldn't be too bad either, right? This is a request for the basics of life, and it should be prayed every single day. Do you pray every day for God to give you your daily provisions? Even if this week you are not threatened at all that there will be food on your table on Thursday, you're not worried. You know you're going to go. You're going to eat absurd amounts of food. We still should pray this request because it reminds us that we are not independent. We are not self-made, self-propelled people, but are dependent moment by moment on the graciousness of a loving father. The next request reminds us that repentance and the asking of forgiveness from God is the continued posture of a Christian. Let me say that again. Repentance and asking forgiveness from God is the continued posture of a Christian, not a one-time act. It is a reminder that what we deserve is not forgiveness, but God grants it on the basis of Christ. Do you understand this? There is no progress towards sin killing or growth in Christ where there is no repentance. We must be daily repenters for we are daily what? Sinners. It's why Davis said that this petition assures us that we'll never run out of prayer material. For our sins supply us with plenty to mourn and pray over. We must be daily seekers of forgiveness, lest we forget the grace of God towards us. 
John Owen, Puritan John Owen asked, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always on it, at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Further, if you remember that we are debtors, we'll be more ready to forgive those who sin against us. Yes? See what Jesus says? Forgive us our sins. What? For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. This petition is one of the reasons, I think Andrew Wilson said in the introduction, that this prayer is not mild, inoffensive, vanilla, or listless, or wishy-washy. Do you realize what you're asking for in this petition? Listen, when you pray this prayer, again, this is what frightens me about so much mindless praying the Lord's Prayer. When we pray this petition, we are asking God to forgive us our sins by the measure that we forgive others. Now, this isn't some kind of bargain struck where we are earning God's forgiveness through the way we forgive others. Jesus assumes that those who have been forgiven by God will be the kind of people that forgive others, simply from the fact that they have experienced lavish and unmerited forgiveness from God in Christ. A willingness to forgive others graciously, in other words, is a hallmark of a true disciple, while withholding forgiveness and nursing grudges is a mark of the opposite. Martin Luther said bluntly about this petition, he said, when you declare, when you declare that you will not forgive, and yet you stand before God with your precious Lord's prayer on your lips and babble, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, is this not the same as saying, oh God, as I am your debtor, so I also have a debtor, since I will not forgive him, do not forgive me. I will not obey you, even though you bid me to forgive my neighbor. I would rather do without you in your heaven and go to the devil eternally. Hold back, Luther, hold back. See, believers are not, as Davis said, simply objects of forgiveness, but are conduits of forgiveness, extending it to others what God in his grace has freely extended to them. So to withhold forgiveness while seeking it from God, what does Jesus say about that? It makes no sense. Like, you remember the parable of the unforgiving servant? Jesus wants to know if someone who has tasted the lavish forgiveness of a holy God would truly be able to withhold forgiveness for far less offenses. So we pray this petition. We're asking for forgiveness to be given by the measure we offer it. This puts things into perspective, doesn't it? <laughs> And causes us some introspection that should ask our hearts when we pray this petition, why am I withholding forgiveness? God didn't withhold it from me. Does this make sense in light of the forgiveness I've experienced from a holy God and a just judge, which I am not? Would I want God to forgive me? This is the big question you should ask. When you withhold forgiveness, would I want God to forgive me the way I'm forgiving others? But then, says Jesus we're to petition God to not lead us into temptation. What Jesus is not saying is that God leads us into temptation. Okay, God does not lead us into temptation. First, James says in his epistle, God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Rather, this request is for divine aid to prevent succumbing to sin's power. It's a recognition, again, that we need God for all things. 
especially to withstand the onslaughts of the devil. It is a dependence on God to help us when we are faced with temptations to sin or compromise. This is acknowledgement that we could do nothing apart from God. That's what this boils down to. We certainly cannot overcome and defeat sin without his power, and so we ask him for strength and resolve to resist. This petition itself is a humble admittance of weakness, a need to rely on God for power, because if we had power in ourselves, would we need this petition? You know, the alternative of this is self-assurance and pride, which are both the very things at the heart of every sin. If we are proud and we think we can handle every onslaught of the devil, we will assuredly fall. If, however, we in humility go to God and we 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 say, help me in these trials and in these temptations, I cannot overcome without you for I am weak and needy, he will surely come to our aid. Charles Spurgeon tells a story about two men who were arrested and they were in prison um, and they were condemned to be burned at the stake for their faith in Christ under the rule of Bloody Mary. One of them boasted very loudly to his companion of his confidence that he would endure the flames, and I'll never deny Christ. His companion in the same chamber was poor and trembling soul, who, though determined not to deny Christ, was very afraid of the fire. He said he had always been very sensitive to suffering, and he was in great dread that when he began to burn, the pain might cause him to deny his master. He begged his friend to pray for him, and he spent his time very much in weeping over his weakness and crying to God for strength, and the other continually rebuked him, and he chided him for being so unbelieving and weak. You know what happened when they came to the stake? He who had previously so bold and boastful renounced Christ at the mere sight of the flames and was set free to live the life of an apostate, while the poor trembling man whose prayer had been, lead me not into temptation, stood firm as a rock praising and magnifying God as he died a cruel death. So we, when we pray this prayer with humility and recognition of our fleshy frailty, will be kept secure by God. Even though, maybe not even through, maybe not from, but through tests and temptation and trials in the likeness of our Lord. But next, Christ moves from what we should pray to a parable that illustrates another crucial part of prayer. Point number four. Boldness. Boldness. I couldn't find a synonym that started with P, all right? Boldness. I just gave up. This parable is short, isn't it? Running from verses 5 to 8. And it's kind of humorous, isn't it? The story is of a man who has unforeseen house guests, and so he goes to his neighbor's house at midnight, and he asks, can I get some bread to feed my guests? And the neighbor says, don't bother me. The door's shut, and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. So you have one man who is in desperate need of bread in order to be hospitable host, and his friend who is sleeping who has bread, but he doesn't want to wake up his family. What will he do? Jesus tells us in verse 8, because of him impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now, impudence, like hallowed, isn't a word we use very often. When was the last time you used that word in normal conversation? Uh, Harry's like, yesterday. Uh, but the reason the translator... <laughs> The reason the translators chose this word, the translators made this decision to use impudence here. Rare English word. It's because it gets to the meaning of the hard-to-translate Greek word. The word means something like shamelessness and boldness. Okay, that's what that word means. 
it's the, it, it's the neighbor who is in need that is bold enough to go bother his friend at midnight. He had the, chutz, the chutzpah, as the Yiddish would say, to go and bother his friend to get what he needed, the gall, right, to risk asking. What is Jesus trying to tell us with this parable? What we're meant to see is that God is not like the friend who has been woken up. God is to be contrasted with the friend who helped begrudgingly, okay? He's to be contrasted with that friend. God does not tell us to go away. God does not tell us that we are inconveniencing him. God does not sleep, but is always awake and listening. Whereas the friend is grumpy and tells the petitioner of the trouble he must go through to help, God delights to have his children come to him and ask him boldly what they need. So the lesson is this, if we're going to put it in a sentence, a gracious God will respond to those who have the nerve to make their request to him, no matter how bold or big they may seem. Now, some people, maybe you've encountered somebody like this, or maybe you felt this too, are afraid to go to God too often with the same petition. Right? So, some are afraid to pray big, bold prayers that ask of God a miracle or the seemingly impossible. Some think God is like I get sometimes when my kids keep asking me for the same thing, right, <laughs> over and over again, that like he gets impatient or rude. Not so. Jesus is telling us here, take your gigantic prayers to God. Ask of him what you will. Ask of him as often as you will. And ask him any time that you will. John Owen said, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. I mean, we're talking about the God of all things here, right? Now, who's our father? The God of all things. <laughs> the same God who spoke and all things were created. The God who holds all things together with the word of his power. The, the God who rules every last molecule in all of the universe with meticulous providence, wherein not even a leaf falls without either his direction or permission. What can you ask then, friend? That is out of his ability to grant. Klein Snodgrass says this, the parable says in effect, if a human will obviously get up in the middle of the night to grant the request of a rude friend, will not God much more answer your request? The parable encourages boldness in praying. If one is assured of being heard receptively, and particularly if one thinks of God as the father to his children, as in verse 11, praying boldly is much easier. See, another thing Jesus is showing us with this parable is that answer to prayer from God is not wrung out of him with much effort like water from a soaking towel. The friend in the parable needed to be convinced to help, didn't he? You know, back then, families all slept in the same room because their houses had only one room. He'd have to wake up the whole family to help this man. So he says, go away. But the petitioner keeps harassing him because he needs that bread. He asks shamelessly and boldly, and the neighbor gives to him begrudgingly. Friend, you, if you're a child of God, you don't have to worry about him being bothered. You'll never bother him. He'll never say, this petitioning from you is annoying and costly. <laughs> He'll never say that. Go away. He'll never say that. Never will he take that position with you. And your problem might be that you think what's causing you, have you ever been in this position? Your anxiety is not 
too big but too small? You ever felt like that? Too small to pray about? But if it's worth making you anxious, it's worth taking it to your loving Father who will never think you are a bother. In fact, he is so unlike the neighbor. He is so unlike him that he not only is not bothered, but he delights in your coming. He delights in it. He loves when his children go to him and ask him. He loves childlike dependence on him. He may not always give you what you want, but he'll never turn you away. We could go to him because further, he knows what's best for us. Do you believe that? And he will give us what we need, even if he may not give us what we want. You see the difference? Even still, we're to ask with boldness, knowing him who we are asking, loving father, ruling king. And this brings us to our fifth and final point. Point number five, promise. Promise. Here, Jesus encourages us to ask, to seek, to knock. And each of those actions, he tells us, has a corresponding compassionate response from God. Ask, it will be what? Given. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open. All of this, again, stresses that God is supplier of all good things. We go to him, we don't rely on ourselves. Even still, you need to get this too. The point of what Christ is saying here is not that we'll get exactly and always what we ask. You know this as well as I do, right? That we sometimes ask for things from God that he does not give us, no matter how passionately and earnestly we ask. So we know from experience, Jesus is not promising that whatever we ask, we'll get. What he is saying is that God is ready to give, so ask. Ask with the expectation that God will respond. And trust that even if God doesn't give you what you want, he will always, 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 always give you what you need. That's what 11 and 12 are communicating to us. Jesus says, God is a loving father who gives his children what's best for them. No father, no matter how terrible he is, will give his child a serpent if the child asks for a fish. No father would give their child a scorpion in response to a request for an egg. It's absurd. So if earthly fathers who are fallen, who even the good ones are evil <laughs> because of sin, Give their kids good things. How much more will your father, who is in heaven, give you good things? He's the perfect father, isn't he? Doesn't he know what you need? Doesn't he know what you need even before you did? Doesn't he, like a parent, know what we need even better than we do? Would he give you something that is either useless or harmful? If we go back around to the start, we know he is a father who is both provider and who cares for us. He knows what's best for us. Don't burden slowly melt away when you know the one whom you're petitioning is a perfect, loving father who sees a bigger picture than we do. Who knows what we need better and before? We do. See, I'm a father. I have five kids. And what do I require of my kids? For them to be my kids. You know what I require them? Be my kids. I ask them to obey and be good kids. That's what I ask them. And guess what? They don't have to worry about if they'll have breakfast tomorrow. Who's going to take care of it? I'm going to take care of it. And why? Because I'm their father. <laughs> we brought them into the world. We'll take care of their needs. They don't have to worry. So what do I require? Just be my kid and let me take care of your clothes and your food and whatever else you need. And you know, sometimes I tell them no to things that seem good in their eyes. 
but aren't good for them if they have it too much or too often. And I'll never give them a scorpion if they ask for an egg, maybe as a prank, right? But I'll give them an egg because they need to eat, right, eventually. And guess what? I'm not a perfect father. I fail all the time. But the Heavenly Father is a perfect father. He knows your needs. He'll meet your needs. You can rest in his loving providence. If you have it, he gave it to you for a reason. If you don't have it, it's because he doesn't think you need it. Don't your kids sometimes ask you for things that are good but aren't good for them? Don't they ask for things that will not help them in the long run, that you withhold for their good? And of course, they think they know better than you because all kids and teenagers are smarter than their parents. Everybody knows this, yes? Sometimes you say no to good things because you see a bigger picture than they do. Isn't that true? Do you see how we're, our relation to the Father? Sometimes we think we know better than the Father, don't we? But sometimes he withholds good things for us because he knows they're not good for us in the long run. Sometimes he withholds things for us because they aren't what's best. Maybe then we should think of God's no's to some of our petitions as yes to our good and his glory. In other words, if God saw that having, this is the trick, right? If God saw, saw that having what we asked for would be for our good, he would give it to us. If we don't have it, it must not be for our good. We all know, you know Romans 8, 28, right? You know by heart. God works all things for our good. But we sometimes forget that his definition of good is different <laughs> than ours. We must trust that he knows better what we need than we do. Again, like a good and loving father. Think of it like this. God gives us everything we would give to ourselves if we were in his position and knew everything he knew. Spurgeon said, there are many things for which I wish and which I sincerely think to be good, but I say at once, if I have not got them, they are not good, for if they were good, good for me, and I am truly seeking God, I should have them. If they were good things, my heavenly Father would not deny them to me. He has said he would not, and I believe his pledged word. His promise to us is that he will give us what we need. But I need you to see, before we finish, the biggest promise of all. You see it? What we need, more than anything in the world, he will give. What I'm referring to, verse 13, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Do you know what you need more than that job you want? You know what you need more than your marriage to improve? You know what you need more than better behaved children? You know what you need more than that raise you've been after? You know what you need more than a house or a car. You know what you need more than even daily bread. You need the new birth. You need the Holy Spirit. No gift can be given to you that surpasses the Holy Spirit indwelling you. you do you guys see the Trinitarian nature of this passage? You are adopted by the Father because of the Son through the Holy Spirit. If you have the Holy Spirit, you have adoption and you could call God Abba, Father. If you have the Holy Spirit, you can have a kingdom perspective. If you have the Holy Spirit, you can realize your need to rely on God for all things, even daily bread. If you have the Holy Spirit, you can forgive others freely. If you have the Holy Spirit, you can resist temptation. If you have the Holy Spirit, you can go boldly to the Father, for it is the Holy Spirit, because of the work of Christ, that you have such privileged access. The Holy Spirit will help you to pray in the will of God, and will help you to become more and more like Christ. 
The Holy Spirit is what you need more than anything in the whole world. And Jesus says, come to me and you'll receive the Spirit. The Spirit will thus provide God's guidance, presence, and intimacy. With God as Father, Christ as King, and Holy Spirit as God, what else do we need? Now, after all this, you may still be seeking some practical things you could do to improve your prayer life. So I just want to, let me suggest a couple things and then we'll pray, okay? If you want some practical suggestions to improve your prayer life. One of the most important things is to just carve out intentional time. Okay? Set aside a time to pray. If you don't do that, you'll rarely or never pray. Or you'll only pray when you're in a bind. Carve out non-negotiable time that you set aside to pray. If you're too busy to pray, you're too busy. Cut something else out, <laughs> all right? And replace it <clears throat> with time of prayer. Next, consider keeping a prayer journal or write down your prayers and requests, or you could download, there's something called the Echo app that's on your smartphone uh, app store for free that you could put your prayer requests in and you click through them as you pray. Another thing you could do is read some books about prayer. Let me suggest a couple to you. I hope you write fast. This one is easy to remember. It's called Prayer. It's by Tim Keller. Another one is by Paul Miller. It's called Praying Life. D.A. Carson, Praying with Paul. Charles Spurgeon wrote Power in Prayer. And then finally, there's a ton of others, but Don Whitney, Donald Whitney has a book called Praying the Bible. Now, you should have gotten a copy of that when we passed them out, but if you did not get a copy of Praying the Bible, right when we finish, go out to the prayer stall right here on the other side of that wall and just grab a, grab a copy. Now, if you don't know where to start with your praying, take this model prayer, okay, or from Matthew 6, write it down and use it as a shell or as an outline for your prayer and fill in the rest with your particular requests. Another thing I suggest is read a psalm a day. Read a psalm per day. And after you read the psalm, just pray the psalm. This will help you to begin to pray using scripture and that will shape how you pray. Finally, just do it. All right? Like Nike. Just, just do it. All right? Just pray. They don't have to be, God is your loving father. He isn't looking for your long and impressive prayers. He's not, he doesn't care how articulate you are. What he wants most of all is you. Prayer, you understand, is not to try to treat God like a cosmic slot machine or genie in the bottle or just get what we want. Prayer is foremost for us to get more of God. For us to be changed and for our will to come in line with his, not the other way around. The more you pray the way Jesus calls you to, the more you'll get of God. And the more you get of God, the more you'll want. And the more your perspective and priorities will change because of your privilege of being his child.